So we've been in the book of Colossians for a little while. We've just seen that Paul is, uh, he, he's, he's responded to false teaching in the church. And he's responded by emphasizing Christ's supremacy, Christ's uh, superiority. He's emphasized Christ's sufficiency over all the things that, that, that would be out there in this world versus the philosophies of this world that seek to answer basic life questions. And then he went through, in the end of chapter 2, he basically talked about how the false teachers were using, uh, they were legalistic, they were mystic, they were ascetic, and they would use these different practices, and they would entice some of these believers into following after them. And Paul is warning them and, and admonishing them to continue walking in the faith that they had and that's been established and that had been preached to them. And then it brings us to chapter 3, as we talked about last time. We talked about how the keys to spiritual life for you are basically two things. It's your affections, right? where your heart is, and then where your mind is. What's your mindset? Are you focused on the things above rather than focused in on the things below? And that was Paul's point here in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Well, today we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3. We're looking at two verses, verses 5 through 7, and I've titled this section, if I can still work here, that's not on. i got to take it on. So I've titled this section, The War Against Sin. The War Against Sin. There we go. Sorry, technical difficulties today. Oh my goodness. There we go. Sorry. Thanks, Pete. It's on me. There you go. The War Against Sin. And so when it, when it comes to war, and, and if I had to tell you guys that you're in a war, and if I said that you're fighting a war, you might say, well, what do you mean? And I would even say you're fighting a war whether you even know it or not, right? There are many, many battles in this war, but in reality, there's only one casualty, right? It's the war in your heart, it's the war in your, in your soul, in your body, against the remaining sin in your life. Right? It's called the flesh principle, or indwelling sin. And these are battles that you must fight each and every day. Any victory you gain is only temporary, for the war rages again the next day. Right? The victory over sin in its totality, is wrought by Jesus Christ, but it is not fully realized until we die or until Christ returns. Right? He's paid the penalty for your sin. Right? The wrath of God is no longer placed upon you. Right? The penalty for your sin has been paid. He's broken sin's power over you. He's given you a renewed heart, a new nature that you can say no to sin. Right? You're forgiven of your sins. Okay? You're a new creation in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. But there still is the presence of sin in your life. It is an ongoing battle that will not be removed from you until Christ returns, until you die. Now, on October 1st, 1950, United Nations forces crossed the 38th parallel, parallel excuse me, during the Korean War. They moved into North Korea and all seemed well for the Allies. Australia was part of these Allies and North Korea had been routed and its army was almost destroyed and it was a matter of time before all of Korea would be united under a democratic rule. But little did the, little did the Allies know that 200,000 Chinese troops were secretly marching to cross the border and to intervene in the war. They were marching by night. They would hide in the daytime from American and Allied planes. And when they attacked on October 19th, it was a complete surprise. They had marched and the result was a complete pushback of the Allied forces. Now over the next few years, the lines changed back and forth. What we have today is the stalemate, the armistice from that war. And in reality, this, there, there is still the absence of peace. Technically, both countries and the United Nations are still at war. Right? There has been an armistice. It's continually. Now, peace, and this is where we get this wrong, peace is not the absence of conflict, 
because Korean Peninsula, the Korean Peninsula, is not at peace. Peace comes through victory, right? And so when you think about our war with indwelling sin, there, there can be no peace. There can be no armistice. You will continue and you must continue to fight the battle against indwelling sin. There will be victories and there will be defeats, but you must be willing to set your mind on the things above and wage war against the flesh. The fighting is necessary. Jesus tells His followers that we must deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and we must follow Him. That's Luke 9. If we love Christ, we obey His commands. Because if you don't resist sin, if you don't resist the sinful flesh, it will destroy your spiritual life. John Owen, in his book, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, which is a great book, by the way, he gives the dangers of not battling this indwelling sin or this flesh principle in your life. He said, indwelling sin works to bring forth great evil. Indwelling sin in our life wants to hinder us from doing good. It it pollutes our, our spiritual life. It hinders our communion with God. It destroys the fellowship we have with other believers. Indwelling sin begins small, and then it explodes. It's, it's always sad when we hear of people of respected pastors or respected people in the faith, that they fall into sin, and they just immediately fall off a cliff. It was a small thing that began in their life, and it was like a great boulder that, that grew and grew and grew until finally it squashed their spiritual life. Giving in to indwelling sin allows the uncontrolled lust to flourish in your life. It it hardens your heart against God and His Word and His people. Giving in to sinful flesh separates you from God, His family, your family, your friends. And giving in to indwelling sin causes you to be useless to God and unfruitful. And so what we're going to be looking at today in this section, we're going to be looking at Paul is speaking to the believer's duty to wage war against the flesh, our indwelling sin. He has told these believers that the key to their spiritual life is heavenly affections, a heavenly mindset. And now he calls them to look and he calls them to mortify the flesh. So we're going to be looking at three points today in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5-7. through seven. We're going to be looking at the, the command to mortify the flesh. We're going to look at specific vices to mortify. And then we're looking at reasons to mortify. So let's go ahead and look at the text, and then we'll dig in. Verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you were... And them, excuse me, you also once walked when you were living in them. So the first point this morning is we are commanded to mortify the flesh. So mortify the flesh. Well, what does that mean? Right? To use the word mortify, literally Paul says, put to death. Right? In the NASB it says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Now, the word here is a, it's an aorist imperative. Right? So it is a command that, that, that speaks to immediacy. Right away you need to do this. Right away you need to put the sin to death in your life. Right? It's also a general principle in that it applies to us every day at all times. Okay? It's interesting, the word here, necrosot, is a word, we, we get necrosis. Our word necrosis from its root. Necrosis is when the part of the body dies, what do you do? You have to really cut it off. Right? It's gangrenous. It's dying. Right? And for, for the, the infection, the, the death to, to spread, you remove those parts. You amputate those parts. Now the Latin Vulgate translate this Greek word into the word mortifico. We get our word mortician. Found it interesting that in 1895, the trade magazine, the Embalmers Monthly, the Embalmers Monthly, I'm sure all of you are subscribed to that, the Embalmers Monthly, they put out a call because they felt like they needed a new name for their profession because they were called undertakers. And they said the term was perceived to be tarnished by its association with death. So they asked for everybody to submit words. Or what's a new name that we can call ourselves? And it came up with the term mortician. And that's what's common in the United States today. We don't call them undertakers anymore. They're called morticians. 
So you get the idea of morticians. It has to deal with death. So when you say mortify the flesh, you're talking about putting the flesh to death. Well, Paul here, he echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew. In Matthew, Jesus speaks about mortifying the flesh. He talks about it in the sense of, well, we need to understand where the source of sin comes from. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, oops, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than to have your whole body thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than to have your whole body go into hell. And see... People have taken this passage and they've taken it the wrong way. Jesus is talking about mortification of the flesh, not mutilation. The story of Origen of Alexander, one of the early church fathers, lived in 184 to 253 AD. He, he actually read this passage and he misread it and he castrated himself because he believed that was what he needed to do. The, the idea is drastic action. We take drastic action to remove sin out of our life to resist the temptation, to resist the desires of the flesh. I'll give you an example. When I, when I worked in Southern California, I worked in the San Fernando Valley. And as a delivery guy, there was this one area not too far from Van Nuys, the little town of Van Nuys, <clears throat> that had this huge billboard. And now I couldn't, when I first ran across it, I couldn't believe it because this billboard was, don't get me on the meters, but it was probably 100 feet tall. So it was equivalent of maybe a three-story building. Huge billboard, tall, wide. And I, and I drove by this thing, and it had pictures. It was advertising for a certain brand of, of underwear, and they had basically women, a woman and a man in, in what I would say is just lingerie and a huge billboard, right? I'm like, this is ridiculous. Having to drive and look at this thing. So what I would do, I would take drastic measures. Even though my stop from this stop to this stop was only about a 10-minute drive, I would take drastic measures and I would go around that billboard to make sure I didn't face that visual in front of me every day. Even though it added time on my route, I would avoid, I took drastic measures, right? So that's what Paul is talking about here. And that's what Jesus, we take, we mortify the flesh. We, we put sin to death. Right? We, we take what's needed, we do the drastic actions in order to what? To starve this. Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Well, we, we deprive the indwelling sin of its power or its strength. That's how we mortify. So we deprive the indwelling sin of its power or strength. We, we starve it. And we do that really in two ways. First of all, we have new life in Christ. Right? We're no longer dominated by the power of sin. We can resist sinful temptations in our life because we are a new creation in Christ. We also have the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit gives us strength always to do God's will. I love Paul's prayer in Colossians chapter 1. He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse, let's start at verse 10, He says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. But he also prays in verse 11 that you would be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness, perseverance, steadfastness, staying true in trials. So he's praying that the Holy Spirit would, would continue to strengthen these believers no matter what they're facing. We have the Holy Spirit that gives us strength to resist sin. I was reading an article. It was interesting. It said that Australian researchers are working on a drug that blocks the amino acid glutamine from cancer cells. And what they found, and it shows early promise, is that when they can block this amino acid from cancer cells, in effect, it starves the cancer cells of what they need to grow and multiply. This is a way to attack cancer by starving these cells. Look, the new nature that we have in Christ breaks the power of sin in your life. Right? 
But we have to show effort on our part, right? We have to, we have to devote our time, I read our energy to resisting the indwelling flesh that remains inside of us. Right? Paul says we, we, we make more, no more provision for the flesh in Romans 13. Right? We, we make no provision. It's like going camping. We, we pack up all the provisions that we need for our journey. Well, we don't want to make those areas in our lives, in our hearts. We want to make provision for that flesh. The, things that, the secret things that we like, the fantasies that we have, the things that we want and we desire in this world, we don't want to make provision for those things. So we put those things to death. The, the impulses, the thoughts, the fantasies that are opposed to the truth. The anger, the jealousy, the lust, the greed, the vengeance. You see, they all begin in the mind as thoughts. And we, we, we fantasize about those things. We let those things dwell in our minds. And then we act out on those thoughts. So Paul says here, look. He says, mortify the flesh, starve it, put it to death, kill it. It requires effort. Figured you could read that. John Owens, do you mortify, do you make it your daily work to be always at it while you live? Cease not a day from this work, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Right? Sin will kill your spiritual life. So the number two, the specific vices... To mortify, specific vices to mortify. Look down in verse 5. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. So the first one is immorality. That's any sexual activity that's prohibited by God. Look, modern society, we've redefined terms to make them less bad. Right? You talk to someone and they say, Oh, I, you know, I live with my partner. That's a big one in Australia, partner. We live with my partner. Right? Oh, so you're committing fornication. Uh, yes. Right? Or, or adultery. Or, I'm not in love. Or, you know, we grew apart. Or, you know, uh, this person meets my needs better. No, it's adultery. Right? Homosexuality is an alternate lifestyle. Right? It's sin. Any sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage is prohibited by God. Right? And one thing about sexual morality, one thing about this word in particular that's used for morality here, is that in Roman culture, it wasn't considered wrong. By the time of Jesus, they become so used to it that they just kind of like, eh. It's just kind of, oh yeah, he's got a mistress. Eh, whatever. In a, lot, in a lot of ways, it was like today. Immorality was so rampant that they really didn't think it was bad unless it goes to excess. Right? They still believed incest and bestiality and those kind of things were wrong, but only because they were excess. Anything else, as long as you don't go that far, is okay. And so these believers for Paul's day, they had trouble letting go of that tolerance for sin. So you have immorality. And then you have impurity. So impurity is an, an internal, moral, and cleanless. Right? It's, it's our thoughts Right? We're obsessive about something. We're, we've become unclean. Like the word here literally means the decaying matter that's inside of, gra- of a grave. Okay? So you think of impurity, it's unclean. It's decaying matter. Right? This is what you are if you're impure. You, you, what's in inside is filthy. Right? You think about the word carrot. K-A-R-O-T. Not carrot that you eat. Right? My, my wedding ring is, is a certain carrot. We think about gold carrot. The higher the carrot, 24 carat gold is 100% pure. 12 carat gold is 50% pure. Right? That's how they measure purity in gold. Right? Well, this is uncleanness. It's not pure. It's not 100%. You see, because what goes on when it comes to immorality, those sexual acts that people do, it's always based off of what? The uncleanness in their heart. It starts inside first. And then Paul says the next one, he says, look, not only is there immorality and impurity, there's passion. Like, these are strong emotions that are, that are aroused by an external object. They, they have a drive with them that, that, don't, that does not rest until it's satisfied. The word here in Greek is, is pathos. 
right? They're dishonorable passions in Romans 1, chapter, 1 excuse me, verse 26. So we can have strong emotions. In one sense, there's nothing wrong with passion as long as it's within the right context. Right? We have, you cultivate passion. You, you need to cultivate passion with your wife and your husband. Right? That's something that, that ebbs and flows at times. Right? It's not love. Right? Passion is often misconstrued as love. Like teenagers, they have passion for one another, but it's not love. What is love? Right? Love is a, what, a, a lifelong commitment characterized by self-sacrifice. If you look in 1 Corinthians 13, love is, is an action verb. It's an action term. You demonstrate your love by putting someone else as more important than yourselves. Right? You love them. You show that love. You demonstrate you care more about them than you do yourself. That's love. Right? There's emotions involved with that. Emotions are, are passions, are the passions that we direct in the proper context. You see, when you think of passion, you can even use that passion, that pathos, in oratory. I mean, there actually is a, a rhetorical style in which you use pathos in order to, to get people's emotions excited and you, you get them, you get them uh, bound up with you in what you're speaking. You get them aroused into a fervor. You know, one of the things I've watched in the past is I've watched speeches from, by Adolf Hitler, right? And as a speech maker, he's a great speech maker. Now, I'm not saying he's great. Don't misquote me. Right? As a speech, as one who's given a speech, as a rhetorician, put it that way. And he uses that pathos. If you, if you watch his speeches, he starts out really low. Right? And he starts, now obviously I don't speak German, so I'm just watching the speech. So he starts out with a really low tone, and he's using his hand gestures, and they're very, very soft. And then he builds, and he builds, and you get to the end of his speech, and he's shouting, and he's pumping his fist, and the crowd is just, they're, they're eating it up. He's arousing in them the, the passions. So it's that strong emotion, that strong desire that, that's inside of, us, inside of us all. So Paul's saying, look, you need to mortify these vices, the immorality, the action, the, the impurity that's there. You need to mortify those strong passions into, so they're directed at the right thing. Right? Picture of David dancing is a picture of passion directed towards the Lord in the right way, responding to who God is and what He's done. And then he says, evil desire. It's a, it's a concentrated, strong desire, or it's often translated in Scripture, lust. Now, desire in its sense, in its basic sense, is not wrong. Right? You, the, the body has desires, right? We have desires that are appropriate. Jesus actually uses this term when he says, I, I long to eat the Passover with you when he was talking to his disciples. I had the strong desire. But we know this is an, a bad desire because it has the adjective, evil. So it's evil desires. These are, these are thoughts. So we've moved from strong emotions to concentrated thoughts in your mind. See, desire is, sin distorts our natural desires. It distorts our desires in the direction Right? We want the things that we shouldn't want. And then it distorts our desires in degree. We, we want some things more than we should. Right? Desire for food is not bad, but when you eat too much, it's gluttony. Right? Sexual activity inside of marriage is, is perfectly okay, but when you want it outside that bounds, it becomes what? Adultery or fornication. So you have evil desire, right? So Paul says, mortify those things. Put them to death. Kill it. And then he comes to the last one and he says, look, he said there's greed. Or the same word is covetousness. Right? It's a compound word. And it's interesting in the Greek, it's made up of two words. It means to have and more. To have more. It's a grasping ambition. It's avarice. It's, it's an it's an ambition that lives only for the moment. You want what you want because you want it. It's an insatiable appetite that's never satisfied. Proverbs 27, 20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, but so are the eyes of man. The heart, the eyes of man are never satisfied. You never can see enough. And there's always those diminishing returns, Right? 
It's like, you know, I've heard people say, and I've even said to myself, oh, I'd love to go visit and love to live on this tropical island, right? Vanuatu, it'd be beautiful to live there. Or or I'd go to Bali, right? It'd be beautiful. You know what? Very quickly, you'd get tired of it and you'd want something else, right? You'd want to go visit the Adelaide Hills because you live in a flat island, right? Your eye is never satisfied, it's greed. It's covetousness. It's the root of so many sins. It's an all-consuming thought that dominates your every waking moment. You want something and you fixate on it. Because this is the heart of the matter. The root of the sinful desire in your, in your life comes down to the impulse. And the impulse here Paul is talking about, and he's winding this down, the impulse is greed. It's covetousness. It's the beginning of all sexual sin, right? It's the beginning of so many other sins as well. It manifests itself in different ways, right? We're, we're dissatisfied. What we want, and what, what we want is more than God has given us. And we justify. We say, oh Lord, it's okay for me to entertain this, this, this greedy thought because I deserve it, Right? I deserve more than I have. I work hard for what I have, and I want more. It's greed. It's covetousness. Or, what, or we look at what we have and we say, well, you know what? My car is old. I need a new car. Right? We, we justify the desires in our heart. We find fault with what we have. Right? And then we do the comparison. Right? We call it keeping up with the Joneses in the States. Right? We look around at our neighbors and we say, hey, They have a boat, a car, a caravan. They have a nice house, a beach house. I need to have those things too. We allow that dissatisfaction and we we have that that impulse of of covetousness in our hearts and our minds and we start thinking about it and we want more. In our marriages, as wives, you, you look at other men and you say, well, why can't my husband be like that? Guys, you look at wives and you, other, other women, excuse me, and then you compare to your wife and say, well, why can't my wife be like that? Right? And it begins with a, what? It begins with that covetous thought. And rather than killing it right there, and this is Paul's point, you kill it at the beginning. You kill it at the impulse. You allow it to what? You allow it to fester. And it becomes an evil desire. Right? And you start focusing on it. And then what happens? Then it arouses your passion. And then it arouses your, what? Then you become morally impure on the inside. And then what happens next? You act. Right? That's why Jesus says in Matthew that, you know, you say it's wrong to commit adultery. I say that anyone who's looked on a woman lustfully has committed adultery. Because the act always begins with the impulse. It always begins with greed. always begins with a covetousness. It's the root. Because we have to learn to be content. Paul says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances in Philippians 4.11. Right? 1 Timothy 6, 6-10, Jesus, Jesus, Paul talks about this to Timothy. He says, look, contentment is of great gain. Contentment with godliness versus, what, covetousness. It's in this particular passage we get that famous, famous section that people often misquote. Right? The root, money is the root of all sorts of evil. People will say, well, money is the root of evil. No, no, money's not the root of evil. Money is the root of all sorts of evil, all kinds of evil. The love of money, right? It's the love of money. It's that, it's that greed, it's that covetousness, right? The, the opposite to covetousness and greed is contentment. So when you have that thought, that greedy thought, that covetous impulse in your mind, you have to kill it and you have to replace it with something else. You have to say, all right, I'm going to put this away and I'm going to think about this instead. I'm going to think about things that are good and pure and I'm going to be content with what I've got and be thankful for who the Lord's given me and what the Lord's given me. Look, we live in the Western world, right? We have so much, right? It's always interesting to me, you know, we think about poverty, we say, oh, there's so many poor people in Australia, so many poor people in the United States. And these poor people, you know, they have, they have iPhones, right? And, and they, have, they have a car. You go, to, you go to Africa, you go to countries in, in parts of the world, and, and poor people are, are people that are, that are suffering from malnutrition. Right? They, don't have enough, they don't have calories to meet their daily needs. That's poverty. Look, 
in my home, there's this, on the back window, there's this, uh, there's this little spider that's right there in my window. It's like in the crook of the window, and I just haven't had to take care of it yet. But we go and we, we cling the cobwebs out on the backside, and I cling these cobwebs, and you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, i got to get that, that spider. He's, he's in a little hole in the window, and so it's not like I can just grab him. So I'm going to have to pour something down there and, and take care of him. But we clean out the cobwebs. But you know what? Clean out the cobwebs doesn't eliminate the problem, right? You have to kill the spider. You can take care of the immorality and say, well, I'm not going to do these things, right? But if you don't deal with the internal greed, you don't deal with that impulse, you haven't killed the spider. Paul says mortify, put to death, kill it. Now the one thing about immorality, go back to that for a second, the word there is porneo, and we get, we get our word pornography from it. You know, what a, what a sad state. The world is in, is in currently with the, with the situation that is being, um, being put forth on the internet with pornography. All right? What we've done with pornography is we, we've hypersexualized girls. You have girls as young as six and seven, they're eight years old. They're, they're wearing things that, honestly, my mom would have, would have took a switch to my sister if she had wore when she was a teenager. Right? That you're teaching young girls that they're, they're sexual objects. At an early age, you're teaching them to respect their bodies, to practice modesty. I was reading statistics, pornographic, pornographic content of phone texting among 7 to 10 year olds has grown exponentially over the last 10 years. Young men who are involved in pornography, they distorts their view of women and God's plan for sex. There are some in this room that today are struggling with pornography. If you even look at the statistics, even among Christians, 34% of all internet downloads are related to pornography. One third of all pornographic viewers are women. It's not just men. Grandparents, it's your granddaughters and your grandsons that are struggling with this. Parents, of young kids, your kids will have to deal with this. You need to have a plan now, if you have young kids, of what you're going to do to deal with this issue. Right? Seven, eight, nine-year-olds. Right? Already cases of, of texting pictures that they shouldn't. It's the leading cause of divorce in the United States. It's, porno, it's, it's pornography and the related adultery that goes with it, or the pornography itself. There's a high correlation in teens between pornographic use and depression. Look, parents, you must be the one to inform your kids about the nature of sexuality and God's plan for marriage and sex. Don't let them figure it out on the internet or figure it out by their friends or on TV. Help them to understand God's plan for the physical acts that are supposed to be reserved for marriage and the, the blessings and the joy that comes from obeying God. You see, it all goes back to killing the desire. Right? You don't wake up one day and say, I'm going I'm to turn on pornography. Right? It starts with what? The, the greed, the covetousness, the dissatisfaction, that impulse. And you play it over in your mind. And what does it do? It becomes an evil desire and goes from there to passion and then become impure. And then you act it out. I was reading an interview with uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, famous serial killer in the United States, killed lots of women. And they asked him, you know, well, how, did, how did this all start? And they traced it all back. Obviously, he was, he was mistreated as a, as a young child by different family members, but then he got into pornography. And he became obsessed with it. And it, it gave him a, a wrong view of women, and it progressed from there to there until it, his fantasies, he wanted to start acting them out. And he did. And he murdered many, many people. Look, I, I hate cactus, right? I hate cactus. You know, just they're prickly, they're nasty, right? We have one here in my front yard. I dug it up really quickly because it was spreading. I threw it away. We went back there a week later, and there's a little cactus growing up. I'm like, what's going on? What happened? I didn't get it all. You know what I did? I took my shovel, I dug it up, and then I dug up all that whole area, chopped it all up. 
Make sure anything that was left in that ground would not be useful. And I haven't got any, had any cactus growing in my yard since then. Right? You have to get to the root impulse. Kill it. Replace it with thoughts that are appropriate. When you're tempted, and that impulse comes in and says, you need to do this, right? That, that greedy desire, or you need this to make you happy, and you know it's outside of God's bounds for you, you need to replace it and say, no, God has given me all I need for life and godliness. God has given me so many blessings. I think all these dads wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to destroy my family and go cheat on, cheat on my wife, have my kids hate me, and have a broken home for the rest of my life. Or these, or these women say, you know what, I'm going to cheat on, cheat on my husband and this guy at work. I think they just wake up one day. No, it starts with what? It starts with an evil, it starts with a greedy, covetous desire in the heart. And you must mortify it at that point. Okay? And I've got this chart. Ah, there you go. I knew you wouldn't be able to see it. See? So, for those of you who have bulletins, I put inserts in the bulletins. So hopefully everybody, at least one family, has one. I think there's a couple in the back. The idea here is it's the same thing we've been talking about, but you can see it from a concentric circle standpoint. It all begins with the greed, and it moves outward to the action. Right? A little handout to remind you of that. So when you're going through your daily lives, and, and this sinful impulse comes into your heart, you'll remember, hey, I need to squash it. I need to kill it now before it turns into something else. Okay, But Paul even goes further, and he says, not only mortified those, but he says, it's idolatry. Look down at verse 5 again. He says, which amounts to idolatry. Why is it idolatry? Well, Paul's already said in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4, through 4, that we should what? We should have our affections... Right? We should seek the things above and set our minds on the thing above. Our, our, our affections, our love, our desire should be for, for Christ and His Word, His people, to obey God's will. Right? Set our mind on those things. And if we're not setting our mind on those things, what are we setting our mind on? The things of this world. Right? So idolatry in its basic sense is, is focusing your affections on something other than God where they belong. You put something in your heart in the place that only God should be. And that's what covetousness and that's what greed does. Right? You think about it. You want something so bad. It begins with that little thought of, of, of a greedy thought. I want this. You know, I deserve this. And then you start dwelling on it. It becomes that evil desire and passion takes root and, and you've got to have it. Right? It, it dominates your thoughts. It becomes the Lord of every moment of your life. Who should be Lord of every moment of your life? Jesus Christ. That's right. The Lord. Exodus 20, 4-5 You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is in the earth or beneath or that is in the water of the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Right? It's, a, it's not a, a, a pithy kind of human sinful jealousy. It's a jealousy of wanting something that is rightly yours. You are God's children if you proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and He is your Father. He has the right over your life. Right? And if you serve anything else and you love and you long for anything else, then you're making that Lord of your life. So there's a righteous jealousy been involved in college and youth ministry for many years, and I remember multiple times talking to uh, young ladies and some young men as well, but one of the things they, they long for is to be married. And that's not a, a bad thing to desire, don't get me wrong. But what it can do is it can become an idol, whether it's all they think about and all they do is want to be married, right? And they go to great lengths to try to make it happen. And I've even had situations where in order to make it happen, they go outside the bounds of God's, what's permitted for them, what God has permitted for them. Right? They start dating an unbeliever because they find some guy that will give them affection and attention. And what's happened is that, that desire, the godly desire for marriage has turned into a, an idol in their life. Right? Rather than be content in their singleness, 
knowing that God has that for them at this particular time and using that singleness to glorify Him. They're so focused on marriage, they'll do whatever they can to make that happen, even if it means marrying an unbeliever and causing so much distress in their lives. Right? I know in my own family, I've got close family that one spouse is married and one spouse is not. Right? That's, it's a hard marriage. It's hard enough when you've got two Christians and we're, we're struggling with those sinful impulses, the simple, sinful impulses in our lives. It's hard enough with, with the Christian marriage. And then you add an unbeliever and a believer who, who don't have the right mindset, right, right affections. Right? So you know, they, they so focus on marriage that they're willing to, to sin to have that marriage. Right? Paul says, look, marry anybody you want as long as you're in the Lord. Right? Doesn't matter. As long as they're in the Lord. There's still wisdom involved with that. So covetousness or greed is idolatrous because it's where your affections lie. It's you love that person or you want that person or that thing. And Paul specifically here, you want you want that person, you want that gratification so much that you don't care about anything else or anyone else, and you don't care about the Lord. It dominates your thinking. Jesus says, if you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So you say, well, I love Jesus. Are you, you love Him enough that you're willing to obey Him? That's, that's the test. You know, if somebody's in the faith, are they obedient to the Lord's commands? Look, covetousness in the heart, greed in the heart, leads to a great many sins. And then Paul gives reasons. Reasons to mortify the flesh. Verse 6, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So the, the first reason is divine retribution upon sin. He says these things, these vices, all of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is God will judge evil and sin in this world. Right? There's the immediate judgment where you, unbelievers reap what they sow. That's Paul's, uh, I call it the, the toilet bowl spiral in Romans 1, where people reap what they sow. God gives them over to the depraved heart to do the things which are not proper. They want to sin, He lets them sin. They want to sin some more, He lets them sin some more. Right? There's consequences that are immediate parts of God's judgment. You reap what you sow. Then there's the eternal separation for unbelievers that they will be separated from God in the lake of fire for all eternity. Revelation chapter 20. Now, believers, we are not under God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1 says that that we are are free from the wrath to come. The penalty... Right? For our sin, the wrath of God was poured upon Jesus Christ. When we accept Him as Lord and Savior, we confess our sins. Right, Then we're cleansed from unrighteousness. We're given the righteousness of Christ. So we've been forgiven. We don't have to worry about the wrath of God. What we do have to consider is that we are God's children. Hebrews chapter 12 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Right? He is our Father. And just as you... And your fathers, and I as a father discipline my son when he does wrong, God will chasten you. Because he does it for your own good. Because he desires you to be like his son, Jesus Christ. So he says, look, the wrath of God is coming. It's something that you can be sure of. Here it says, this will come. You know, we, we're going through Second Peter in our home groups and... If you have any questions about this, you can see Jordan afterwards. But we're, we're talking about how there are the false teachers and they're denying the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And they're saying, well, if Jesus isn't coming, then live like you want to live. Do what you want to do. Jesus is coming. And you can count on it. And then he says, look, the wrath of God will come upon them Become these sons of disobedience. Now, it isn't disobedient sons, but it's sons whose life has a characteristic of disobedience. Right? Remember, Jesus says, If you love me, you obey my commands. Well, how do you know someone's an unbeliever? They, they not only reject God's commands, but ignore God's commands, they shake their fist at God's commands. 
They're sons of disobedience. It's the opposite of what First Peter or Peter says in First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one verse four. Peter says that we are to be children of obedience, children whose life is characterized by obedience. Right? It's a lifestyle. These sons of disobedience, these people, they have a lifestyle of defiance, shaking their fist at God. They're ruled by covetousness. They're ruled by idolatry. So we should mortify our flesh. And when I say divine retribution, we should mortify our, our flesh because we see how much God hates sin. If God hates sin so much that He's going to pour out His wrath upon those that are rebellious to Him, if He hates sin so much that He sent His only Son to die in our spot so that we would not suffer eternal judgment, we should want to mortify the flesh in our lives. A.W. Pink says that God's wrath is His eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure, indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. Believers, God hates sin. Right? If God hates sin, we should know as His children we want to please Him. We want to demonstrate our love. We should mortify the flesh. Kill it. Kill that indwelling sin the moment that it strikes His head up. Don't allow it to fester. Don't allow it to grow. Right? The mind is like a garden. What you plant and what you water and what you fertilize will grow. The deeds of the flesh are the deeds of the Spirit. Right? If, you, if you take that, that greed and that covetous fault and you dwell on it, it will eventually become an action. But you replace that with the Word of God. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. We're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. The Word of God renews our minds. Right? God is teaching us who He is and what His will is for us. So we replace that thought, that, that sinful desire, that greed, that covetous impulse, with what? Contentment. With things that are good. Thankfulness to God. Right? We, we, we squash it. We kill it at the moment it arises rather than allow it to fester. Right? People that have problems with anger, as we're going to get into next week, people have problems with anger. It just doesn't start with explosive outbursts. You think road rage incidents on the highway? Somebody just woke up and says, I'm going to, I'm going to hit somebody with my car today. Right? No, no, they've got anger issues, as we like to call it, already in their heart. Right? They're already struggling with anger. It's just these outbursts that come out of them. So we should mortify because we see how much God hates sin. There will be divine retribution. And then it's how you used to live. He says, look, and you were in them. He's talking about those sins. You once walked. You once made it a, a conduct of your life. And he says, you lived in them. It was your, it was your lifestyle. It's who you were. Do you, wanna, do you really want to go back to that? Right? Do you really want to go back to the depression, the lack of joy? Right? the lack of knowledge of who, God's is, who God is. You want to go back to the consequences of that sinful life that you used to live? Look, we should mortify sin because we should not want to act like those sons of disobedience. Right? Because we remember what God has saved us from. Not only is His wrath, but He saved us to new life. We have a new nature that can say no to sin, that can obey Him, that can experience the joy and peace of God. We have the Holy Spirit that gives us strength so we're not left on our own to do these things. We don't have to mortify the flesh in our own strength. When you try to mortify the flesh in your own strength, that's those ascetic practices that the false teachers were saying that you need to do. You need to do all these things in order to earn God's favor. We don't have to earn God's favor. We have His grace we have the Holy Spirit. We have His power in our life to help us to obey. We should mortify sin because we should not want to act like them. It was your past life. If you're rich in Christ, why do you want to go back and live in the slums? Look, the war that we wage against indwelling sin is a constant one. It's one that will not end the sight of heaven. Either Jesus Christ will return and will receive glorified bodies, will no longer struggle with this flesh and these impulses, or will what? We'll go into the grave and be with the Lord. 
You know, there used to be an expression in Europe for centuries, and they would say something like, oh, that's like a black swan. Right? We say it kind of like, well, that's when pigs fly. Or that had never happened, well, pigs fly. Right? Well, they would say, what's well, a black swan? And that was a really common saying. They found it in plenty of literature in the early 1600s. Well, they had to modify this slang, saying, excuse me, had to modify this saying because in 1697, the Dutch found black swans in Western Australia. So it's imagine if we were talking about pigs flying and they found flying pigs in Western Australia, right? We'd have to modify our saying. Well, they found black swans. Well, believers, look, you can be victorious over sin in your life. It is not a black swan, right? It's not something that you can't do. It's not something, don't tell me, hey, you don't know what I'm struggling with. You don't know what's in my heart. You don't know what I've done. You can be victorious over sin. It is not a black swan, no matter what people say. There is an answer to the sin that so easily entangles us. And it's mortifying the flesh. It's killing the impulse at the very beginning before it manifests the sin in your life. You can do it as a child of God because you have a new nature and you have the Holy Spirit. Don't give up. Kill the sin each and every day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we thank, you for, thank you for your word. Thank you for its instruction, its encouragement that we don't have to live with sin. Help us to work each and every day at killing the sin, the impulses in our lives that keep our thoughts on what is pure and what is holy, what is righteous, what is good. Was to be content with what you've given us. To not allow the the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, the, the things of this world to entice our affections away from you. Father, help our hearts to be wholly devoted to you. Let us live lives to be children of obedience. Father, we thank you again for this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.